BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Dante's Divine Comedy is considered one of the greatest works of literature ever written. The poem not only imagines the three parts of the afterlife, but serves as an allegory for the spiritual journey of the human soul. Here to take us on a tour of the journey Dante describes is Robert Barron, a bishop in the Catholic Church. Today on the show, Bishop Barron offers a bit of background on the Divine Comedy and how it resonates as a story of the search for greater meaning that commonly arises in your mid-30s. We then delve into Dante's journey through Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. We discuss why Dante can initially climb the redemptive mountain of Purgatory and has to go through hell first, the importance of having a tough but encouraging guide for any spiritual journey, why hell is an inverted cone that gets narrower and colder at the bottom, and why traitors inhabit the lowest layer. We then get into what it takes to climb Mount Purgatory, why heaven in the Divine Comedy doesn't get much attention, and what Dante finds when he gets there. Along the way, Bishop Barron describes the meaning behind the religious imagery Dante used in his poem, as well as insights that can be applied to any spiritual journey. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is Dante. All right, Bishop Robert Barron, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be uh, great to be with you. Thanks. So uh, you are a Catholic bishop, but you're also a really busy man. You've done all sorts of stuff. You founded an organization called Word on Fire, where you're putting out tons of content, interviews with public figures. You did a documentary on Catholicism for PBS. You're a religion correspondent for NBC. You speak to corporations around the world about religion. The reason I brought you on because you put out a course on Word on Fire about one of my favorite books of all time, and that's Dante's The Divine Comedy. Most of us, if you lived in America or in the West, you probably read excerpts of The Inferno, maybe in a high school English class. I'm curious, when did you discover Dante's Divine Comedy, and how did it change you? Yeah, I could tell you exactly when it was. It was the summer of 1990, and I was in Germany I was doing my doctoral work over in Europe, and and that summer I went to Germany to study German, and so all day long I was just you know reading, writing, speaking, and listening to German. So I brought with me from Paris, where I lived. I think it was just the Inferno, just the volume one of Dante. I had never read Dante at that point. I thought you know I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read this. So after a long day of German study, I remember going back to my little. It was like a little crummy college dorm room they had me living in. And I had this this small paperback of the Inferno, 
and I started reading it, and it was to me at that point in my life. I don't know why exactly, but I read it like a novel. It was just so engaging, and the notes in the edition I had were so good that it just drew me into the the narrative and everything. So I I loved it from that moment. And then you're right in suggesting that it had a big impact on my life. I think almost every book I've written has some reference to Dante in it. Maybe not every talk I give, but a lot of them would have a reference to Dante. He's one of those people that, at the same time, a great literary master, obviously, but he's a spiritual master. And T.S. Eliot said, you know, Western literature is basically divided between two people, Shakespeare and Dante. If that's true, that one of the two greatest writers in the Western tradition wrote basically about the Christian spiritual life. So I think that's rather extraordinary. And I found him to be indeed one of the great masters. So that's how I found him. And that's that's kind of in general what he's meant to me. Yeah, for me, I, I remember reading a bit of it in high school English, an excerpt. But then when I was around, I think I was like 35 years old, which is interesting. So we'll talk right. about this because this has an important reference in the Inferno. I, I read the whole thing and it, I remember just being like, this is great. I can't believe a medieval guy wrote this. And I'm constantly thinking about things. I'll have an experience in my life and like, ah, oh, that reminds me of something from Dante. Oh, absolutely. It's archetypal. You know, and once you get into that story, you recognize yourself in it. And as you suggested there, it's for people going through a midlife crisis, and all of us do to some degree. <laughs> Dante, in many ways, is the man to read. It's, it's how, to, how to handle yourself during that time of crisis. I mean, what what do you do? What don't you do? What's the right spiritual program or psychological program? Dante illumines all that. Well, let's talk a bit about Dante and his life, because I think it shapes, you know, helps us understand what he was trying to do with the Divine Comedy. So uh, tell us about Dante. When was he alive? What was his life like? Yeah. Well, he was born in 1265. So he's born kind of at the height of the high Middle Ages. So when he's born, Thomas Aquinas is writing, Bonaventure is writing, the great cathedrals are going up. So he's there at the height of the best of medieval culture. And I would put him in that mix. When people ask about the Middle Ages, I'll say, look at Chart Cathedral, read the Summa of Aquinas, and read the, the Commedia of Dante. And you'll see what that culture was about. So he was kind of born into the best of that period. Born 1265 in Florence, and he's a he's a Florentine in his bones. You know, some people are just identified with the city of their birth, and, and he was like that. He gets involved. He's an intellectual, obviously. He's trained in philosophy and poetry and so on. But he's also a, a practical man of politics, and he gets involved in the very rough-and-tumble politics of that time. Roughly speaking, the Italian city-states like Florence were kind of divided between pressure from the north, from the German emperor, and then from the south, the pope. And they were siding with one or the other, and that's kind of where the politics broke. Well, Dante finds himself around midlife on the wrong side of one of these fights. And without going into every detail, he gets exiled from his hometown. And it just broke his heart into a thousand pieces. He was a man of Florence, and to be told you can never come back practically destroyed him. And it's true, he never came back. He never returned home. He begins to write the Divine Comedy, his great masterpiece, during those years of, of those early years of exile. So it's a book written by an exile for people who often feel themselves in a kind of spiritual exile. Anyway, he wanders those latter decades of his life around different Italian cities. 
He dies in Ravenna, and that's where he's buried. There was a move to have his body brought back to Florence, and his people said, no, 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 you rejected him in life, you won't get him in death. So he's still there, and I, I remember, oh, this is maybe 10 years ago, we were filming in Ravenna, and we made a pilgrimage to Dante's grave, which I found very moving. So he died in, I believe it was 1321 or 23, one of the two. So early 14th century, he died. And what's interesting, of course, is he's born 1265. So when he's 35, which would have been seen as midlife in the Middle Ages, that's the year 1300. And that's when the Divine Comedy is set. In addition to getting exiled from Florence, and that had that basically caused him to write the Inferno or the Divine Comedy, another there's another person in his life who's actually a character in the book, and it's this character named Beatrice. Tell us about Beatrice. Who was she? Well, it's fascinating. Not his wife. He was married to a woman named Gemma and had a number of children with her, but he makes almost no reference to his wife in his writings. But when he was just a kid, this kid roughly his age, Beatrice, he sees her, and it's typical of the Middle Ages in, in that kind of chivalric context that he he just was smitten. He was struck by her, by her beauty, but also by her personality, her spirit. And then many years later, he sees her again, and they exchange a, a glance and a couple of words, but that's enough to make him say, I'm going to write the most beautiful poem ever written about you. So, and of course he did. That's this amazing thing is, you know, I could say that, you could say that, but we don't have the, the creative power to do it. He did. And he said, I'm going to write the most beautiful poem ever written. And that's the commedia. That's the divine comedy is in a way all about her. But because it's about her whom he loved with the deepest part of his soul, it's by the same token about God. And that tells you a lot about his mentality and the mentality of the Middle Ages. You know, that through a beautiful creature, I can come to knowledge of the ever more beautiful creator. So that's the role that Beatrice plays in the writing of it. She's also, as you say, a character in the poem. And that's a very interesting role she plays there. Yeah, this idea that romantic love can lead to love of God. I mean, that's a platonic idea, right? Like that, yeah. Socrates talks about in the symposium, right? Erotic love can eventually lead you to loving the good. Yeah, it's called the Diotima speech. It's a woman around the table, as Socrates and his friends are talking about love and wisdom and so on. And she makes an observation that's picked up by some of the greatest spirits in the West, namely by beginning with the particular beautiful thing or person or event you can move by a steady series of steps finally to the source of all goodness, the source of all beauty. You can see this echoed in Dante. You also see it echoed in James Joyce. Pick up a, a portrait of the artist as a young man, his great autobiographical novel, and there's a scene out of that book that's right out of the Diotima speech and about Dante. So let's talk about the structure, big picture structure of the Divine Comedy, because the book is, it's it's fantastical. It's almost, it's like a fantasy novel, yeah. but it's highly organized and highly structured if you look at it the right way. And in fact, it's been compared to a medieval cathedral. Yeah. Why is that? <laughs> I say for several reasons. If you go to the medieval cathedrals, like a Chartres or Notre Dame in Paris or Reims or Amiens, the great ones, there's a kind of here comes everybody or here comes everything quality about them. In the cathedrals, you can find 
planets and plants and animals and people, obviously, and angels and God and the Blessed Mother and like the whole universe, gargoyles, etc. The good, the bad, the ugly, it's all there. There's something of that in the Divine Comedy. There's a line I remember from a hero of mine, Kenneth Clark, who was uh, the great art historian that was behind that series called Civilization. And in the course of that, at one point, he says in his plummy accent, is there sensuality in Dante? And he says, of course there is. There's everything in Dante. <laughs> you know, And it's it's a good observation that like the cathedrals, there's an everything quality. It's all there. But secondly, as you suggest correctly, the architectonic structure of it is very much like a cathedral. So the cathedrals were were balanced and symmetrical and ordered. And usually around the number three, you look at the three levels, let's say, of the facade at Notre Dame, the three portals, you know, the three entrances, etc. The whole building is kind of predicated upon the number three, and for obvious reasons, because God is three persons. Same with the Divine Comedy. Three major sections, the Inferno, the Purgatorio, and the Paradiso. But then each of those is subdivided into 33 cantos or, or divisions. And then the cantos are displayed according to what is called terza rima or third rhyme. It's a particular rhyming pattern. The point there is in the architecture of the poem, the number three is consistently ingredient. And for obvious reasons, because if you want to get out of the dark night that he's in, you've got to be trinitized. You've got to be brought into the life of the Trinity. So the the order and the harmony of the internal integrity of the poem is very much like a cathedral. All right, so let's dig into the Divine Comedy. And what I'd like to do, sort of organize this, I think Dante, we're going to make Dante our guide for our spiritual journey in life. Like he goes through a spiritual journey, and I think we can look to him on how what we can learn about that. So the poem starts off with the Inferno, so this is his trip to hell. And the opening lines, we kind of alluded to them, are this. He said, midway in the journey of our life, that's funny, he didn't say my life, he said our life, I found myself in the midst of a dark wood, and the true way was lost. Why does Dante begin his poem like this? So important, isn't it? Many people at midlife go through a time like that. First half of life, when you're seeking, you know, relationship and marriage and your kids and your career and your house, and and you're on a certain path and you're finding great joy in that accomplishment, something tends to happen at midlife. And, you know, Jung, the psychologist who loved Dante, took 35 as the midlife number. You know, it's not 50. It's more like 35. What often happens is the things that got you going in the first half of your life, the things that gave you joy and purpose, are suddenly kind of taken away from you, and you feel lost and arid and depressed, and what what am I about? What am I supposed to do? So that's where the story begins, midway, and it's the journey of his life, because as I say, in the year 1300, he's 35. But by saying R, you're right, he's trying to draw everybody into it to say, my story, I do think, is your story too. So midway on our life's journey, we tend to find ourselves kind of lost. I bet bet a lot of people listening to the two of us right now will identify with that. I found in my years doing pastoral ministry is very often people at that age, like 35 or so, would come with difficulties and problems and depressions and 
Do you remember, I just saw it recently, that old movie with uh, Billy Crystal and Jack Palance, you know, the city slickers. Remember that? Right, yeah. They're out there and, you know, he, Billy's going through a midlife crisis and, and Jack Palance is kind of his wisdom, like his Virgil figure. And at one point he goes, how old are you? And he said, I'm, I'm 38, I think he said. And he goes, yeah, yeah, they all come at the same time. And, and that's just old spiritual wisdom that often at that age, see what's, what's happening is the first half of your life, you found success. And Dante did, you know, he had his family and his, and his wife and his career and all that. But then see, we're not meant just for that. And so it's, you, you have to be sort of weaned off of the things that obsessed you in the first half of life to, to get now into a deeper place. But that's painful invariably. And that's how the story begins. And he talks about how he got lost was he fell asleep. And, and he's talking, and he, says, he says the true way was lost. So he's insinuating that he had the true way at one point, but he fell asleep and then he lost it. I think that, ha- I mean, if I look at my own life, I just turned 40 not too long ago. And I, part of that, I, I read my old journals from like the, f- the first 20 years of my adulthood. And when I, as I read those journal entries when I was 19, 20, my early 20s, I was struck by how earnest and idealistic I was. And like, I've got these ideals I'm aiming for. And then as I got older, my journal sort of shifted to complaining about, you know, carping about the day-to-day of life. And maybe that's what happened. Like, he, maybe I think all of us have those ideals, but then just because of the day-to-day, it, we forget what, what's really important in life. Yeah, I think that's a legitimate way to, to get at it. And maybe it was Dante being so caught up in the politics of his hometown that he lost, you know, his, his love for philosophy and theology and all that. Maybe it was compromised by all those battles he was in. And then he saw that he had the terrible pain of his exile, which never went away. And But I think he would say that opened him to a deeper desire, a deeper place. And and that's how the story commences. If you miss that, you're going to miss a lot of what's going on, I think, in the Divine Comedy. It begins with a man in crisis. It's like, I always compare it to um, the beginning of Moby Dick, you know, when, you know, you call me Ishmael, and, you know, when it's a dreary November in your soul. That's how that story begins. And he knows, I've got to go on a journey. He's got to go on this whaling ship, and, and then the story unfolds. It's similar with Dante in a way that he he begins in crisis and he knows implicitly he's got to go on a journey. All right. So he's scared. He's lost. He knows he needs to go on a journey. So he looks around and he sees a mountain and he's suddenly filled with hope. And he's like, ah, I see the path. I'm going to start walking towards that mountain. What was that mountain and why did it give him hope? And then how come he couldn't climb up the mountain? Yeah, it's the mountain of purgatory, which he eventually will climb. But it's he has a lot of work to do before he gets there, and you know it's not a bad thing when you intuit during a time of crisis. Oh, there there is, actually is a way out of this. There is a path, and at the top of it, there's there's light. And I I'm not in an impossible situation. But the mistake he made at that point was to think he could just race up the mountain. Like, okay, no problem. I'm going through a rough patch, but just give me you know a, a quick little burst of energy, and I'll be fine. But what he needs to do is go on a very long and very arduous journey, eventually going up that mountain, that's that's right, and coming to salvation. But it's going to cost him. It's not a, a cheap grace kind of story. And there's what happens is there's three animals that block him, and they basically, they represent the different types of sin he will encounter when he finally goes to hell. Right. The different degrees of sin, and the people that read them in different ways, how to interpret the animals. But the main point is, you can't climb the mountain. You can't just race up the mountain. You got to come to terms 
with these kind of ravenous forces that are in you that are blocking your access to truth and goodness and beauty. There's something the matter with your own soul that you've got to deal with. Otherwise, you get to the top of the mountain and you'll still be the same person. So you'll be blocked. You just might might be in a higher a physical place, but you won't be higher spiritually until you deal with these animals. And so these different levels of sin will correspond to the levels of hell that he has to go down. You know how wonderful that even when talking about hell, there's that medieval sense of hierarchy and order and symmetry. So even hell is laid out a bit like a, like a well-ordered building. Yeah, you make the point in your own ministry and working with counseling individuals that before they can make that change, they might have that inkling of hope, like, yeah, I, I need to do something and I there's something that'll help me. You say they got to go through a deep moral inventory, yeah. similar to what they, you know, what you might see in a 12-step program. And that's what these animals were saying, like, hey, no, you can't do this. You're going to have to go to hell and kind of face your inner demons to see what's going on in you. Right. And and I use that on purpose, of course, that language from the 12-step process. Now, do a connection there. The 12-step was recognized by Jung, the psychologist, as a very powerful kind of psychological, spiritual tool. And it's found resonance with a lot of religious people because the principles of it are close to our principles. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Someone's got to hit bottom, right? If you're addicted to sex or to drugs or to you know whatever it is, you won't really make progress until you've hit bottom, until you say, okay, I know I'm lost I know I can't solve this problem on my own, right? At which point, you've got to hand your life over to a higher power. Well, look how the Divine Comedy unfolds. It opens with a guy kind of having hit bottom. He knows he's lost. He first tries on his own. Oh, I can get up this mountain, no problem. No, 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 you can't. And then what happens is his life will be handed over to these higher spiritual powers. And only under their direction... Will he, now another term from the 12th step, be able to do a searching moral inventory, right? So someone that's going through AA or something, you have to you have to do an inventory not only of the things that you've done to other people, ways that you're drinking or whatever has hurt other people, but you got to go deep down inside and look at the roots and sources of this dysfunction. Well, that's exactly what happens here. Hits bottom turns his life over to a higher power, and then is walked through a searching moral inventory. So it's very much along the lines of the 12-step. And mind you, too, under the guidance of a of a mentor. So in the 12-step, you have a sponsor, right? You have, an, you have an elder or someone that's been through the same journey. And so Dante has that, too. There's a tremendous resonance there. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Dante hits bottom, but then he learns— to go up, he's going to have to just keep going down. He has to go yeah. go down to go up. So he has to go to hell. And you mentioned he has a guide, his mentor. It's Virgil, which is a weird pick, right? For a Catholic Italian guy, his mentor through hell and purgatory is this pagan poet. Why Virgil? Well, there are several reasons. One is he's, a, he's another self. When you're first getting going in this process, you need someone that has a kind of authority you know, over you. But at the same time, it's better to begin with someone kind of like you. Well, who is Dante but an Italian epic poet? Who is Virgil, an Italian epic poet? Virgil represents, in Dante's vision, human reason. So precisely as a pagan, he doesn't have the benefit of revelation. 
So he represents like what what humanity can come up with on its own, a human reason. Now, this is a good Catholic instinct. He's writing at the same time as Thomas Aquinas, who said faith and reason, who used classical philosophy in his articulation of the Christian faith. So something very parallel is going on here, where Dante is using pagan wisdom to get him going in the spiritual process. And I see, I find that as a, as a Catholic, it's kind of wonderful, is use whatever works in a way. If someone comes to you and they've really been struggling in the spiritual order, the psychological order, well, okay, start with a philosopher, a psychologist, start with a wisdom figure from the world. Maybe that's that's better. The person can get that more easily. So that's what Virgil represents. He's like Dante, and he's human reason. And it leads him a long way. Virgil will lead him all the way down through hell and all the way up Mount Purgatory. It's only when he's ready for heaven that Virgil has to hand him off because human reason can't go that far. But I think, you know, if people listening right now are going through a crisis, you got to find a, a mentor. You got to find a spiritual guide and maybe begin with someone who's kind of like you. That's a lesson here. And also the thing about Virgil, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't use kid gloves with uh, no. Dante. He's constantly just berating him because Dante, you know, he's going through hell. And he's, you know, naturally terrified of what he's seeing. And Virgil's always taught like, like a stern, I, I, he reminds me of like a stern football coach. Yeah. Buck up. You got to be brave, man. And don't hide your eyes. You got to look at what's going on here. You know, so you're, you're 40. So I'm a bit older than you are. When we were going through school, so I was coming of age in the Catholic church right after uh, Vatican II. So 60s into the 70s. Everything was kind of soft in those days. We, we were emphasizing, you know, the love of God, the mercy of God, uh, forgiveness, and, you know, get up and you'll, you'll be okay. And But there was something weird about that, because if you look at the great spiritual tradition from the very beginning to right through, it's marked by these tough people. Spiritual direction is not like a little soft, you know, here's a pillow and relax. On the contrary, a real spiritual direction is tough work because it involves precisely this coming to terms with what's negative in you. And you do need a football coach. And, you know, I bet this is true for you. It's true of, I think, most men that I know. Who are the teachers and coaches we remember? That They were the ones who were tough on us, right? The ones yeah. who made a lot of demands on us that, that didn't say, hey, oh, you're fine, everything's great. The, the, the coaches and teachers that we remember are the ones that, that demanded a lot of us. That's a lost art, I think. I'll tell you a story from a couple years ago. A priest friend of mine, younger than I am, but went through some of the same kind of training. He said, you know what our generation missed? We missed Yoda on our shoulders. And the reference was in Star Wars. Remember when Luke Skywalker has to go through his sort of initiation as a Jedi? And there's Yoda. <laughs> Yoda was not easy on him and was barking orders at him and making demands and, and literally riding him, you know, to get him to do what he wanted. This priest friend of mine said, we didn't have that growing up. We didn't have Yoda on our shoulders. Well, that's Virgil. <laughs> you need Virgil to say, okay, we got to go through hell. You're not going to hide. If you start swooning on me, pal, you, you better wake up, you know? So I, I think that's a much, much needed thing today. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. 
Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. 
So recently I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the Masterclass on Negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. So transformation requires courage and it requires just being open, like seeing things as they really are. And that takes courage to do that. Yeah. Let's talk about the topography of hell. So they start making their way down hell. It's described as this, you know, an inverted cone. So it starts out wide. And as you get deeper and deeper in hell, it gets narrower and narrower. What does that represent? He's so good. I mean, he's such a great poet. And so all those are symbolic values. So see, in, in Aquinas and the great medieval figures, the soul is meant for expansion. You know, the soul is meant for union with God, and it's meant to go out from itself, first to the, the beauties and goodnesses of the world, but then ultimately it's to, to fly into the fullness of goodness that God is. So it's like f- wings, it's flight, it's mobility, it's, it's spaciousness. So hell is the opposite of that. St. Augustine described sin as being curvatus in se, which means caved in on oneself, which always struck me as a really good definition. Those times in life when you're you're so self-absorbed and self-preoccupied, self-pitying, that you want to kind of retreat into the recesses of your own self. Well, that's hell. So as hell gets lower and lower, it gets narrower and narrower. So that's the the small space of the fallen soul. But Dante's got to go down all the way to find the source of that narrowing in him. Of course, the other thing, so the narrowness of hell is also the cold of hell. And that's a that's a marvelous intuition of Dante's because we always associate hell with heat, with fire. He doesn't. It's the opposite. The deeper you get, the colder it gets. Much better symbol, I think, because... Sin is is a cold state of affairs, and I make the world around me colder when I'm in sin. Cold causes me to kind of you know grasp at my own sides to warm myself up. It it narrows and constricts me, so it it corresponds to the narrowing of the physical space of hell. And I think to me that's always been a marvelous symbol, not fire but ice. No, I think I I think that's a great representation and great description. Because I've known in my own life when I am in those periods where, you know, I'm not I'm just like I'm self absorbed. I, I don't feel good, and you feel cold. And I think we've all can relate to that. And what's interesting too is Dante's going down hell. He's he's talking to the the souls in hell. And what's interesting the way the impression that I got is that they they all continue to be self absorbed. Like they're just still yeah. talking about you know, whatever happened to them in life, or they just talk about, well, the reason I'm here is because God put me here, or it's my parents, or just because the time right. I was born. Again, it's th- that self-absorption is still going on there. Well, and look at, if you're dealing pastorally with people like going through a 12-step type process, that's often what you got to overcome, is maybe before someone's hit bottom, they're, they're playing all those games all the time of, oh no, this is not really my problem. If someone else did this to me, it's because of that. And I have these old resentments and, and, you know, if only things were different, then I would feel better about myself. And 
you have to get beyond that. And everyone in hell is reflecting everybody else, but in this very negative way. They're reinforcing their own constriction and, and coldness and negativity. Um, it'll be the opposite, of course, in heaven when everyone reflects everyone else in a positive way. You know, we're in a, in a beautiful world, you and I would be in enhancing each other. You know, as I would appreciate your goodness, you'd appreciate my goodness, and we wouldn't be in a rivalry, but we'd be in a in a relationship of kind of mutual enhancement. Well, hell is the opposite, you know, where there's and and the thing is, you know, we we all we all live in hell in the measure that we're sinners. We know what that's like. When I find myself in this cold, narrow space, full of self-pity, blaming others making the world around me colder, uh, filling other people with resentment. I mean, I, I know what that's like. Um, and Dante expresses that in his, in his very fine poetry. What's interesting about Dante, too, and the way he depicted hell, the bottom layer of hell, like the, the closest to Satan, that's where the fraudsters go. Right, it's not the murderers. Yeah. It's not the you know people who do violence. It's people who lie and people who commit fraud, who are traitors. Why? What's going on there? Why did Dante think that was worse than killing somebody? For a very simple reason, because it's more spiritually pure. So, like sins of of lust and and you know when your passions get the better of you, they're sins. Don't get me wrong. Dante sees them as very serious things, but he also can find room in his heart to. To forgive, you know, when someone's passions or bodily passions get the better of them. But see, when you're you've betrayed a friend, well, that's not just your bodily passion getting the better of you. That's a very coldly calculating move that participates much more in the soul than it does in the body, if that makes sense. Someone who's caught in some kind of, let's say, a sexual addiction, a lot of that is the body or, or the the desires of the body kind of run amok. He's much more sympathetic with that than he is with the cold-blooded, calculating traitor. And that's why I think quite rightly puts them at a lower place in hell. If you look at the deadly sins, and we'll get there when we get to purgatory, but probably most people today, you mentioned sin or you know vice, they would think right away of sexual sin. Well, Dante reverses that. Sexual sin for him is the least of the deadly sins, where, of course, pride is the most serious. But I wonder how many people, if you say, boy, that guy is really a sinner, or that, that guy really is caught in vice, would they think of pride, first of all? I, I rather doubt it. But Dante is right in line, by the way, with the great spiritual teachers too. Aquinas would certainly say that, that the greatest of the sins is pride, not lust. So he gets down to the bottom of hell and he sees Satan and Satan's this kind of pathetic figure. He's this giant with wings and he's covered. He's like in ice to his chest and he's crying. He's got three faces. He's sort of this inverted trinity going on. He's chewing up the great traitors, Judas, and then the guys who betrayed Caesar. And, you know, Virgil says, all right, we got to hop on Satan here because we got to keep going on our trip. And what's funny, Satan doesn't do anything. That's kind of that soul idea that when you're in a place of sin, it's you're just self-absorbed and you're cold. And what's right. interesting, you, you talk about this in the course, you know, what Virgil says to uh, Dante is like, all right, hold on here. We got to keep going down. That's that's the only way we can get up to purgatory. There's so much that's fascinating there. I, I think one of the great literary inventions in the whole tradition is Dante's invention of Satan in, at the pit of hell. As you say, he's at the very lowest place. So the coldest place. And it's the iciest place. He has wings, as Dante imagines him, because he's an angel, right? 
Well, angels are meant to fly. They're spiritual creatures meant to fly into the beauty of God. But Satan is a perverted angel, so the wings have become like bat wings. And now that he's stuck, it's beautiful, beautiful perception here. He's stuck. So as he beats his angel wings, which are meant to make him fly, all they do is make the world around him colder. See, it's it's the use of, of a positive spiritual power but in a sinful way. You know, the um, that, that's the Christian idea of sin, by the way. It's not like, there's no such thing as pure corruption. Corruption has to be a corruption of something good, by definition. You know, so uh, evil is only a privation of the good that we, we say. So the, the wings represent what's good in Satan, his spiritual powers, but they become corroded and corrupt. And so all they succeed in doing is making the world around you colder. How many of us sinners use what's good in us, our, our minds, our wills, our powers, our whatever, but to harm people? <laughs> we, what should be instruments of, of love become instruments of, of hostility. Well, that's the wings of, of Satan beating over the ice and making the world around him colder. And then as you say, beautifully, he's got three faces. God is three persons. And that's a way of, of expressing the fact that God is love, by the way, right? That in God, there's a lover, the father, a beloved, the son, and the love they share, the Holy Spirit. So that's beautiful. The Trinity is an expression of the love that God is. What's every sinner? Every sinner is a sort of perverse simulacrum of God. In the measure that you're a sinner, you think you're God. You think you're the center of the universe. The, the world revolves around you. The world exists to serve you. And so all of us sinners have these three faces. We're perverse inversions of the Trinity. And then, as you also suggest, he's chewing in each of his mouths on a sinner. In Dante's mind, the three greatest traitors, Judas, who betrayed Jesus, and then Brutus and Cassius, who betrayed Caesar. So there's our thing, too, about that's the most refined kind of sin, betrayal. But he chews on them without devouring them. And then he weeps from all six eyes. So stuck, coldly in place, making the world around you colder, chewing on past resentments, and weeping in your sadness. That to me is such a beautiful depiction of what sin looks like, what sin feels like. In other words, he's not a glamorous figure. The devil is often portrayed in literature as a, a glamorous figure, but he's not in Dante at all. And he's effectively powerless because they they jump onto his sides and he, he barely even notices them because he's so stuck in this sort of hopeless self-regard. That's a beautiful picture of what goes wrong with us. And notice he finds it at the bottom of hell, which means it's the source of, of all the negativity of hell. So when you go on that spiritual inventory and you go all the way down into yourself and find this wound or this pain or this sin that's generating all that's wrong in you, that's a very important spiritual moment. So they make it to the bottom. And as you said, to, to go up, you have to go down. You have to kind of fall upwards. Right. I think Richard Rohr talks right. about that. You got to fall upwards. So they continue their trip. Like basically, they're going through the earth, right? Yeah. Out to the other side of the earth. And there they see Mount Purgatory. 
this is where the refinement is going to start happening. So Dante got to see sin, what it was like. Now he's in the process where he can refine himself. Purgatory is that like you get to purge yourself of right. Of and remember, he he tried that early on. Oh, I'll just climb this mountain, but he he yeah. wasn't ready at all for that. And even that move. Oh, no problem. I'll climb the mountain. You see all the pride that was in him, and the sort of spiritual superficiality. So what he needed was the experience of hell. He had to go all the way down and get all the soot on him and all the smell and the stink and the and the ugliness of hell. He had to see all of that. That's true in any spiritual adventure. If you think, oh, no problem, I'll just you know purge a few little problems that I have, then ipso facto, you're in a bad <laughs> spiritual space. So having made that awful journey He's now ready for purgation. So he gets to purgatory. Tell us about the topography of Mount Purgatory. What does it look like? And there's also, there's a daily rhythm that goes on there that didn't happen in hell. It's arranged according to seven levels, and they correspond to the seven deadly sins. I don't know if any of your listeners are aware of um, of Thomas Merton, the great Trappist spiritual writer from the last century. His autobiography is called The Seven-Story Mountain. And it's it's taken from Dante, purgatory, because Merton saw his life as a Trappist, as a kind of purgatorial exercise to walk up the seven-story mountain. So that, that's the discipline. He has to go from level to level. There's a rhythm, as you say, of, of day and night, of work and then rest and so on. There's an orderliness and a purposefulness about purgatory that you don't find in hell. Hell is sort of cacophonous and hopeless and and you know the way that's that's what it feels like to be stuck in sin. But when you're ready for this purgative move, it corresponds to a to a, a discipline and order in the spiritual life. And what you see too is you see the souls in purgatory starting to help each other. Right? Yeah. In hell they were just yelling at each other and carping. Right. In purgatory, they're actually they're starting to come together. They're starting to turn outwards yes, in purgatory. Yes, and that's the right way to, to do it. And and you see it, anyone that's done counseling or spiritual direction, you know, with people, is you see that it's it's lovely when that moment happens. People who are caught in hell, they're they're just the way Dante describes them. Resentful, blaming others, suspicious of everyone around them, looking for the worst, not the best. But when you make that transition and you say, okay, look, I know I'm a sinner. I'm a terrible sinner. And I'm now doing my purgative work. Well, then your your instinct shifts and, and you start seeing other people not as rivals to you, but as companions on the way. And, and you know that in helping them, you're helping yourself and vice versa. So, right, that's a, a major spiritual shift. So, I think that's a good point there. So, for spiritual transformation, you need a guide. You need to do that deep that searching moral inventory, see who you who you are, and then eventually you got to get to a point where you're trying to get better, but you got to do it with other people. Yeah, yeah. right. It's a, that's exactly right. A communitarian enterprise. The spiritual life is never just you know me and Jesus or me and God trying to work it out. God wants to draw us into a family. So the church, and I'm speaking as a Catholic, the church is essential to the spiritual progress. It happens with other members of the mystical body. And that's a beautiful dimension of it. And mind you, Virgil's still guiding him at this point. So yeah. he's, he's not handed him off yet. It's still human reason. And that's an interesting thing. So there's always someone who's maybe outside the formal church, but they're trying to follow this program. Okay, you, you can do a lot under the guidance of, of you know, human, human wisdom. 
So in purgatory, people are working together like, hey, you got this. We can make this happen. You're doing a great job. What does the purgation process look like? I mean, how do they get rid of their their sins? It's usually by a process that Jung referred to as enantiodromia, which is kind of, or Stagnatius would call the agere contra. You, you act against. So pride, you know, which is the elevation of the self, the lifting up, the prideful people have to walk around under the weight of terrible boulders. So their, their self-elevation is met by a self-denigration. Let's see, the, uh, the envious people that kept looking around, you know, at other people and how they're doing, their eyes are sewn shut the way a, a falcon's eyes would have been sewn shut in the Middle Ages. So in every case, and then the gluttonous, of course, are, are deprived of food. The slothful have to get up and run. <laughs> so on every level, it's the opposite of your problem. And that's a very deep spiritual intuition too, though. Simple but very profound. It's like, okay, what's your problem? What's your poison? You got to adjure contra. You have to act against whatever that is. Still very wise advice. And as the souls go up the mountain and sort of start taking off their sin, purging themselves of their sins, they get lighter. That's the another thing Dante notices. They're going to get, they get lighter and lighter. And it's that it's the opposite from, you know, of hell where it's inward and heavy yeah. and cold. Now you're turning outward and becoming lighter and lighter. You know, I think of it, it's funny, ever since I read that, whenever I'm walking uphill, I like to walk and hike, you know, it's a steep uphill climb, like, oh, it's such a pain, this uphill climb. I always think, yeah, you know, in heaven, it'll be the opposite, is that as I'm climbing upward, it's getting lighter. It's a great image. The lightness of being means I'm not weighed down by my ego. I don't have that monkey on my back anymore. That's what weighs you down, is you're preoccupied with how am I doing? How do I appear? Am I successful? Do they like me? And all of that is just a weight on my back. The best moments in life are when you transcend that, when you can set that monkey aside, and then you move with such a, a lightness of step. Well, that's the idea now, is as you're getting rid of your sins, like what if you really could get through a day without pride? That you just, you never once thought about you know, do they like me? Am I doing better than that guy? Why does he have something I don't have? What if I could set all of that aside? The lightness of being is what we all really want, but we're burdened by all seven of the deadly sins. Yeah, I can really. I've, I've, there's been mo- those moments in my life where I just feel that, like I just completely just don't care, but in not, not in a, a nihilistic way, but in a way I just, hey, I just, I'm going to just be focused on it. And it feels great. Yes. But then you just have a tendency to start turning inwards again, and it's it's annoying. Right. Well, that's the Mysterium Iniquitatis, is our, the, the spiritual masters say, the, the mystery of evil. Because as you say, and we all know that, everyone listening to us knows that those moments in life, when you're least aware of yourself, are the best moments in life. But they're like a firework that goes off, and then it, it disappears. So he makes it at Mount Purgatory, and then we enter into Paradiso. And I'll admit, when I read Paradiso— it didn't. It didn't grab me as much as Purgatorio or the Inferno. But I, I know other people have complained about the same thing. It's like, well, I mean, people don't talk about the when they talk about the Divine Comedy. They usually talk about Inferno, maybe Purgatory. Right. People always forget. There's a Paradiso. Why do you think heaven doesn't get a lot of attention? Because we don't know what it's like, and and see, sin. We're all over that. I mean, I I know all about sin. I've practiced all seven. 
deadly sins. I know what that feels like. And so the imagery that Dante reaches for, we're like, yep, mm-hmm, yep, got it. Remember, yep, I experienced that. And the purgatorio, trying to deal with all this. Yes, I've been there. So I think we we just readily identify with those parts. You get to the Paradiso, and now you're in a place that's beyond the deadly sins, that's beyond self-absorption. You're not lost. You're journeying in to the light and love that God is. Well, see, most of us don't don't have a lot of experience that. In those great moments we were just alluding to, maybe in the liturgy, maybe in a splendid work of art, we have little fleeting hints of what that's like. It's like a, you know in the scriptures how the angels, the angels come and they go. They never stick around. Right? There's no example in the scripture where the angels came and, and then they moved in next door and they were there for you know a few months. I got to know them. No, the angels come and they go. And that's, I think, a very deep spiritual point that these moments of breakthrough are moments and they pass. Now, my point here is when you're trying now in a sustained way to depict heaven, we have a much harder time. Even a, even a sublime poet like Dante has a harder time grabbing our sinful imagination. And also what goes on in heaven, what's interesting, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of movement, there's a lot of music. Dante also describes it, souls are just sitting around playing games and singing. And you describe heaven, you do useless things in heaven. But uh, right. as we learn from C.S. Lewis, sometimes the most valuable things in life are the useless things. Yeah, they always are, No, by definition, because if it's useful, it's subordinated to an end outside of itself. So I've got a car, it's useful to me to get me places I want to go. Once I get there, some some things I do are useful to higher ends, but like sometimes the, the car takes me, let's say, to the Mass, and now I'm doing the most useless thing I can on earth. The Mass is the most useless thing you can do, which means it's the best thing that it's not subordinated to an end outside of itself. Or I go to a baseball game. Baseball game is supremely useless. It's a, it's a waste of time. But that means it's the very best thing we have. And so I think play or game language is appropriate to heaven. That's why, you know, playing a harp, which always sounds so dull to me, I, I mean, harp music, if they had like a cool guitar or something, but like playing a harp. But the idea there, it's both music and it's play. And both of those are evocative of the sheer useless splendor of, of heaven. Also, I like about play is, or let's say you're, you're not just strumming a harp by yourself. You're part of an orchestra because now you're, you're sharing music with others. People that have ever like been in a band, you know, those ecstatic moments when the band really comes together and you know, you're not just playing the song, but you've reached a new level of cooperation and and kind of one in the other quality. Or you know, in sports, same thing. Like if you're bringing the ball up court, and and boy, that play just worked, or that fast break, we we all communicated appropriately, and we you know, th- those are the moments that are kind of like heaven. And Dante is hinting at all that for sure. So when he gets to heaven, he looks to the side and Virgil's not there anymore, but it's Beatrice, this this love of his life. Right. And it's funny, uh, you'd think this would be like a great moment, but Beatrice kind of just yells at him, <laughs> Dante's like, and basically <laughs> yelled like, what took you so long? Why did I have to do this for you to get here? Yeah. But why is it Beatrice at heaven that that's his guide and not Virgil? Yeah, because she stands for theology and Virgil's for a natural reason. 
it's more masculine, it's more mind-oriented and you know, purpose-oriented. Theology, I mean, read Aquinas, those people, is certainly a, a rigorous intellectual discipline, but it's predicated upon something more like love because it's a response to revelation. And revelation is always the act of a person revealing him or herself, right? Stay with that image for a bit. I mean, I, I could learn a little bit about you by looking you up and Google and I could read about you and I'm, I'm learning, I mean, a little tiny bit in our conversation today. But if you and I went on to become friends and so on, and then at a certain point, maybe deep into our, our companionship, you decided to reveal something about yourself that I would never have known otherwise, right? Well, at that moment, something like love or trust has to be paramount. Because I, I can't analyze that and just take it in on my own terms. I have to I have to love you enough and trust you enough to believe what you've told me, if that makes sense. That, to me, is a very exact uh, comparison to what faith, religious faith, is like. Is I can know a lot about God through reason, and I can you know work my way up the ladder to a degree. But finally, it's a person who's spoken to me. And so it's in love and trust— that I have to say, okay, I believe that. That's why it's appropriate that, I mean, Vir, Dante didn't love Virgil. I mean, he admired him and he followed him, but he loved Beatrice. And so she's a more appropriate symbol for theology, which is what's needed for the journey into heaven. So he, he begins this journey and what he sees, like we said, the people playing games, they're singing, there's music. Sometimes Dante can't hear the music and he's told, well, your ears are these mortal ears and you can't hear it, but you're only get remnants of it. And the other, the big change too is the souls. The souls in in heaven, they, they've completed that outward turning. They're completely, it's just this communitarian. Everyone's just reaching out towards each other. And I think, I mean, we've all had those moments where people we have differences with, we somehow just, as you said, like that baseball game where you do a great play, everyone's just syncing up and playing their part. Yeah. And so Dante describes heaven as there's individuals. You don't lose your individuality. In fact, your individuality gets enhanced in right. heaven, but it's enhanced to be part of this larger circle of community. Yeah, and it's a circle of community that includes not just human beings, but the angels too. And there's that Gothic cathedral quality, you know, that the cathedrals have human figures in them, to be sure, and natural realities like plants and, and animals, but they also have angels. They have these beings that exist at a higher pitch of existence and who are loving and knowing at a higher pitch. And heaven shows our communion, yes, even with them, even with the angels. How come we can't hear the angels? Well, you can say, well, we're, you know, in our sin, we're just not tuned in. We're not attuned to that level of, of reality. So he makes it to the top layer of heaven, and a new guide takes Beatrice's place, and it's St. Yeah. Bernard. Why, why did St. Bernard become Dante's guide to the utmost reaches of heaven? Because he was a mystic. Bernard was an extraordinary figure, or died early 12th century. Fascinating figure, intellectual to be sure, a religious founder. But what he's best known for is uh, his mysticism. And when I say mysticism, I mean that sense of union with God that has become visceral and direct and experiential. So the philosopher can know something about God based on human reason. The theologian can know at a higher level based on love and trust and revelation. The mystic is someone who's been invited to the table and is is eating at the banquet. A mystic is someone who's kind of beyond 
philosophy, beyond theology, beyond language and conceptuality, and has reached the highest pitch of perception. So even theology has to give way to mysticism at the end of the process. And he's the one that ushers him in to, Dante gets to see the face of God, basically, the beatific vision, is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah. It's a a lovely description, the visio beatifica, so vision. A lot of the Divine Comedy is about vision, coming to vision, coming to see. Well, what's the culminating point of, of all of human experience would be this visio beatifica, the, the vision that finally makes us happy. Beatus just means happy. What's the happy vision? It's the vision of God, because God is the supreme good. And all the goods that we experience are reflections of that supreme good, participations in it. So at the end of all of our striving, when we let go of, of our reason, we let go even of theology, we come to a vision that's only a gift of God, you know? And that's what Dante receives at the end of this long journey. Well, Bishop Barron, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? Well, go to uh, wordonfire.org, all one word, wordonfire.org, and you can find lots of sermons and books and articles and podcasts and lots of things. Fantastic. Well, Bishop Robert Barron, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. God bless you. Thanks for having me today. My guest today is Bishop Robert Barron. He's the founder of Word on Fire. You can find out more information about that at wordonfire.org. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash Dante, where you find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanlix.com, where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And while you're there, make sure to sign up for our newsletter. It's free. There's a daily or weekly option. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLYS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay, reminding you to not listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.